All right. Today we are joined by none other than Dan Wills. I'm going to let him give himself an introduction. So let's hear what he has to say first before we jump into this. I'm co-founder of WellGood. Um, we empower and educate organizations and employees to look after and improve their mental health on an ongoing basis. And how we do that is we use um, technology, specifically AI, um, to be able to prevent the onset of mental health crisis in the workplace. So if this is your first time tuning in, then welcome. If it is not your first time tuning in, then welcome back. We are a series that aims to tackle some of the greatest questions that stem from artificial intelligence and related technologies. The way that we're doing this is getting on incredible minds to talk with me about what it is that they're doing in their respective fields and see if we can find some clarity in these very muddy waters, which is AI ethics, AI governance. Are there any best practices that we can take away? Are there any universal ethics or universal truths that we need to keep in mind as we move forward and as AI continues to become such an integral part of our lives? I will say that this is not the end don't worry if you would like to continue the conversation. We have a Slack community that we've started. You can find links to the community below. And that's a place where if you enjoy this at all, if you like or are doing anything around AI ethics, AI governance, please come in there, share your voice. We'd love to hear you, hear what you're working on. And yeah, feel free to introduce yourself. There's a lot of smart people in there, a lot smarter than me, I will say. And so we've been having some incredible conversations. It's always nice when a community takes shape and you start to see that I or you are not the only one posting and you get some responses to the questions you have or the thoughts that you come up with. Last thing I will mention is that we have a sponsor for this series, Ethics Grade. They're absolutely incredible AI benchmarking firm. You can find information about them in the links below, but I will say if it weren't for them, I would not be here and we definitely would not have the quality or caliber of guests coming on the podcast. So let's get into it and talk with Dan Wills. Are you a robot? So Dan, it is amazing to have you on here. I'm very excited to talk with you about mental health. Mm -hmm. It is something close to my heart. I don't think a lot of people know this, but I actually uh, taught mindfulness for quite a bit when I was living in Spain and when I was around people. <laughs> now these days I'm, I'm living in the countryside. I don't really teach much mindfulness, but I still have my own practice and I still am a big advocate of the importance of mental health. Mm -hmm. And so maybe we can just start by hearing a bit about your story and what got you into this. Did you have some kind of crisis? Did you decide that this was important for what reason? Uh, definitely. So as, as with any, I suppose, um, as with any journey, there, there is always a start point. Uh, and for me, <clears throat> it did start with a crisis. Um, so I was going through my own personal mental health crisis that, um, that meant that I needed to try and find help. Um, and it was, you know, a really tough time of my life, you know, where I was having to try and understand, you know, where that help could be found, um, you know, who I speak to, you know, and, and particularly as a, as, a, as a man, you know, it's one of those things that you, you struggle to come to terms with quite a lot. Um, and, you know, through, through that journey, through um, actually being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, I, I went through this whole entire um, journey of trying to understand what mental health actually is. I had no knowledge of it prior to my diagnoses. You know, the only reference that I ever had was the likes of um, Fight Club or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, all these Hollywood stereotypes of what mental health can be. And and for me, for, for even a moment, I thought, wow, is that actually me? 
know, I've been diagnosed with a serious mental health disorder and mm-hmm. a- am I someone who should be locked up, you know, like, like Jack Nicholson? Um, and it was far from it. You know, the realism of it is, is completely far, um, a different mm-hmm. place. So what happened was with my, um, a lot of my background was in digital strategies and, and the, trying to understand problems and, and trying to find solutions for my clients. And I thought, well, let's do the same here for, for mental health. Um, so I started looking and researching, doing a lot of um, ambassadorial um, sort of work for, um, for a UK charity called Mind. Um, so they're the largest mm-hmm. um, UK mental health charity. Um, volunteering and you know even running a running a marathon um for them which um was was quite an achievement um but throughout this journey i was was really trying to understand more about bipolar and how i could live more positively with my life not only for the benefit of me but actually for my family as well because that's the most important aspect um for for me Mm. and throughout this journey I started looking at platforms that were out there. Um, and if I'm being completely frank and honest, a lot of them would help you at point of crisis. You know, they would tell you that you're feeling unwell when you're unwell, you know, glorified mood diaries, um, as I, as I call them. And for me, yes, having Matthew McConaughey or, you know, a celebrity reading you a bedtime story is, is great for your, your mindfulness, you know, um, or, you know, being asked on a regular basis, you know, how do you feel? That's all well and good if you have that understanding and awareness already. But there wasn't anything out there that would prevent me from actually declining in the first place or, you know, allow me to stay up. And so that's when the concept of WellGood actually um, came to fruition. I met um, my co-founder, my business partner, um, Adam McNichol, whose background is um, managing and um, developing large agencies. Um, So he was last in post at an international ad agency um, as their MD, and he was managing four or five time zones. And as anyone will know, being an MD of an organization is stressful at the best of times, but managing that many time zones, I don't know how he, yeah, he didn't sleep. And he came to a crisis point as well. Um, Mm. and he subsequently had to leave that role. And so we had this vision of creating a preventative mental health platform, Um, but we didn't know what to do. It was one of those like, yeah, we know the dream. We know we want to prevent um, mental health problems for for everyone, Um, but how do we go and execute that? And we very quickly came to the understanding that the business world is probably the best place to start. And it's very well documented of the struggles that people have within workplace stress, um, anxiety, you know, depression. It has huge cost impacts on not only the individual's health, but actually performance. You know, there's actually a financial attribute to um, you know, poor mental health in a business. Yeah, completely. You know, it costs the UK economy about 45 billion a year, you know, in, in poor men, from a poor mental health point of view. And we, we knew from that point that there was a viable business model that we could develop. And actually by seeing all these different data points, we would then be able to develop a, an intuitive AI that could prevent the onset based on user behavior, as well as um, operational metrics as well. So I want to dive into the product a bit more, uh, mm-hmm. a little in a minute, but I will just say that it's so spot on. And I think now more than ever, when it comes to what we're living and how we're living and so many people being isolated, especially if you don't have the ability to be around your family or maybe sometimes, mm-hmm. I'm laughing because my wife's right here, sometimes your family is the the hardship that you you go through and it's not the easiest thing you you go from working in an office all the time and then all of a sudden you're at home and you have to look at reality with your 
<laughs> my wife's staring at me real good right now. <laughs> so she's, yeah. So that is such a, uh, an important factor right now as we're living through this and there is all this turmoil and it is so much easier to be triggered. And I know that just in my own personal life, we have two close friends who are suffering from burnout mm. because of work and how they were working and what they were going through and then being thrown into the washing machine of 2020. And they, they said, okay, you know what? I'm going to take time off. And here's the point that I'm making is that their company is paying for that when they're on sick leave, right? And so that's a, something that a company I imagine would want to try and avoid. Mm. And if they can avoid that, then it's going to be cheaper for them, which is sadly the factor that they are looking at. They're not really, probably not really caring about, oh, well, if my employee is actually well, but they're looking at the bottom line, I would imagine, at the end of the day. And so when you factor that in, but then some of our, well, like one of our friends has stayed off of working for about a year. And so after X amount of time, I'm not sure exactly when. And so this is all Spain too. This is very Spanish centric. I know in the US it's totally different. And I don't think you can expect the government to step in in the US and start giving you funds if you're, um, if you're taking sick leave for mental health. Mm -hmm. But in Spain, they do. If you're taking this, uh, you have this burnout and you have mental health issues, then you're getting money from the government after your company stops paying. So that's another reason. It's like, okay, now you're costing, like you said, the government money and and you're not doing what you could be doing. You You could be creating incredible things right? You could be doing, <laughs> living your dream, as they say. And Definitely. so... Well, the cost there, is both ways, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's not only, you know, are you, are you sick, but someone else has to, you know, do that work as well. And often, often then there is no replacement individual, you know, it means everyone else has to take on, you know, that, that level of work and... Yeah. And leading to more burnout. Exactly. Right? And, and, you know, as as someone, if you're if you are sick, you know you shouldn't feel that guilt at all because mm -hmm. you know you're you know you shouldn't be in that position in the first place that that you are sick, um, and so you shouldn't feel that guilt for the organisation for getting you into that position. Um, mm. You know, obviously there are a whole multitude of factors that come into depression or stress or anxiety and. You know, they are workplace related or personally related. You've got financial well-being as well, you know, which is huge, especially, you know, you're looking at COVID um, and what's mm. happening around that from an unemployment point of view. But, you know, it's, there's so much that we need to be able to identify and look at to be able to understand what mental health actually is. And I don't think until COVID actually came along, COVID's been a wake-up call to a lot of these organizations. And mm. I hate to say it, it's these organizations who have these open-door policies. And, you know, I, I suspect you've probably seen, seen a few of these businesses in the past. And it's like, you know, my door is always open to my staff. It's like, well, it's not good enough. And it definitely isn't good enough now because no one's got these doors and yeah. everyone's going from one zoom to another or you know no one's no one's feeling that they're open to actually speak to someone um that you naturally would have had a water cooler moment for previously you could say oh there's john he's looking a bit disheveled or he's he's been late to work a few times this week whereas now it's like well if i schedule it nicely it means that i can have a zoom at half 10 in the morning i don't have to get out of bed till 10 o'clock yeah. you know <laughs> um so these examples you know it shows that presenteeism is rife within the org within organizations and it is increasing mm -hmm. yeah so there's some things that i wanted to touch on there like 
mainly the this like idea of one sec sorry let me try and collect my thoughts because this is this is hard to hard to articulate but should it be i guess what i'm trying to get at is should it be these companies that are responsible for this or is this every person's responsibility and i feel like it should be it should be the person's right so um, we've got legislation called the equality act um, of 2010 within that it stipulates that workplace cannot discriminate on um, for disability and that they have to support those who come forward with disability okay so these are called reasonable adjustments um, so it's lawful um, it's actual law that an organization has to support their employees through those dark times okay however it is of our opinion and actually of the wider um, community around mental health that it is the employee, so it's the individual's responsibility to maintain their mental health and to you know, live positively. However, in the event of poor mental health or in the event of them coming forward with a mental health problem, it is then the employer's responsibility to try and support them through that so that they can get back to work effectively and product, you know, productively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes total sense. Now, let's jump into the technical side of this a little bit and how you're using data and how you're using AI and machine learning in your own product. And really, the I think the interesting thing that we were talking about before we hit record was the ethical side of this and the great power that you have when you're looking at this data from people and how you can ensure the trust and how you can ensure that you're not going to be um, doing shady things with their data behind the scenes. Mm. No, it's, um, it's that, you know, it's like Spider-Man always says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, isn't it? And, um, and trust is incredibly important to us. You know, we know that the data that we collect and the data that we used for good can also be used in exactly the opposite manner. And we've seen that, um, you know, on a global scale, you know, through uh, politics, you know, and we've seen it on a global scale through, through advertising behavior. Um, and so we know that already we are fighting a battle um, around trust and technology. Um, and not only that, is we've also got that um, interlinked trust between an employee and the business as well. Um, because not all um, countries have the same protection for, for staff as the UK. We know within the States, it's not, you know, the, the laws over in the States are completely different around employee welfare than it is to, to the UK. And so for us to be able to protect those, um, those participants or the employees, we need to make sure that we're upfront about how their data is used and you know, their rights of actually communicating with us directly, um, because that's the most important thing. And that's how we gain that trust very quickly. And so I think we should probably take a step back because I got a little excited and was <laughs> running before. I could walk. And so I think we might want to just break down what exactly WellGood does and how it does it. So what we do is we, we look to communicate with employees um, on an infrequent basis. Um, and with that data, we look to report back to organizations in an anonymous fashion, um, holistically, on the um, mental health um, of the organization that actual health organization do based on um, based on trends of that particular business uh, around sickness around alignment of culture 
and around sort of mental health awareness and diversity and so many different areas that we, we focus on, we can actually start building a predictive and preventative model that will support better mental health within the organization. Mm. And so when you say you communicate with the employee infrequently, is that where the machine learning comes in or is there an actual human calling someone? No, no human at all. Um, so everything we do has been built to scale. Um, so there's a lot of platforms out there at the moment that, you know, they are great for what they do, but they provide a lot of human interaction. So, you know, the opportunity to speak to a therapist um, or the opportunity to to speak to someone um, to be able to take you through that journey. With us, it is fully automated um, and we signpost the um, employee at the right time to be able to prevent that onset of crisis. So a prime example, if we start seeing an in increase in anxiety within an individual, then what we would look to do is look to signpost them at the right times to be able to prevent um, them from actually having real anxiety within the workplace so that they don't get sick and it doesn't contribute to poor performance. And are you expecting the employee to tell you they're having anxiety? Not or... at all, no. Um, okay, so how does that work? So there, there is no single point of data that means that we can identify someone's mental health. Um, you know, you can't say, you know, if you were to talk to myself, um, and say that you're depressed, then that w does not diagnose you. And, uh -huh. you know, we're stating right now that we are not a diagnostic tool. So we will not tell someone that they are depressed or that they have anxiety. And the reason for that, firstly, is because it can be triggering for that individual. Um, so it can actually s spiral them into more of a depression uh, per se. That makes but sense. What we, um, what we look to do is we look to engage with them over several key pillars, understanding, say, for example, awareness of mental health. Um, we look at their awareness of their own mental health. Um, we look at cultural alignment with the organization. We look at sickness patterns within the organization. Um, and looking at all of these different data points it allows us to be able to put together a lovely picture of how the um, health of that individual actually is and how how they can behave in future. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I noticed from all of the different apps that I've tried, and I've done more, like I mentioned before, I, I was big into the meditation, right? And so I've done things like Headspace and Calm and another one, Insight Timer. Uh, and then I also had one that I can't remember the name of now, but it was like asking you, you, you probably know this better than I do it. It's asking you how you're feeling, what you did today or what you would rate your day as, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a lot of dedication to do those. Like I find it, at least this is me personally, I find it much easier to just go and, and meditate rather than go through and look at the different um, the the app and fill in my information and then tell about how how my meditation was or what I was feeling when I was meditating. And so how are you expecting people to take the time and actually be consistent with this or do this and prioritize it really? Because it, it's a question of priorities, I imagine. No, completely. You know, we are busy individuals, aren't we? And there's a reason why, and, and you've just said it, there's a reason why you've used so many apps. Um, it's because you become fatigued with each one um, because of the amount of data that they require from you on a daily basis. You know, I've used them in the past um, and you know, you get notifications at set times every yeah. day, you know, going, hey there, would you like to check in? And realistically, at that set time every day, I'm probably feeling exactly the same. Um, you know, it's very rare that I will probably um, go away from that behavior because it's, you know, usually say six o'clock in the evening before I've got to put the kids away. It's just after dinner and I haven't got time for this today. Yeah. And so the way that we are gathering data is, 
is actually more infrequent. We're not doing it on a, on a daily basis. And we are doing it in, um, in ways that it's not just reliant on their input. So we can be quite reactive to a lot of um, passive behaviors that that individual or that business actually has as well. Do, so does that mean that you're privy to more data than just what they're giving you? And so then you're looking at the business has to give you a lot of co confidential data. How does that work? So we do look at, um, say, sickness records for, for the business. Um, and that's more based on an anonymous anonymous um, point of view so we don't look at individuals around that mm -hmm. um, we can identify trends of sickness um, within an organization on a historical point of view and that allows us to be able to identify preventative um, sort of uh, times of the year that there would be a natural spike in in sickness um, do you also sorry to interrupt but this just came to mind do you also identify maybe some managers that are pressing too hard on their their employees and they are causing a lot of mental sickness? So we don't um, report anything back that is um, identifiable what? to a particular employee. Um, mm. But what we are able to do is we are able to understand if there is an issue um, around management, for example, if there's an issue around diversity, issue around um, you know even even employee benefits you know if, if people aren't given the opportunity to grow within an organization they're not provided enough training um, as an example um, so all these different different things we can identify and what we do to the business which is the most important aspect um, and it's the most impactful thing that we do um, within the work is we report on a regular basis to the business and we give them addressable insights for them to be able to put in place. So a prime example that I always refer to is if we're seeing a rise in anxiety within the organization, um, then we can provide them with addressable insights on how to avoid that crisis within the business. Um, so they can actually action that themselves as, as a business. And what we do is we then encourage accountability by reporting um, any actions and you know any programs that are in place directly to employees as well. So we can say to employees, your business has made these actions and address this, um, which has meant that there's been a return, you know, there's a success story there. And what that does is it then starts reducing stigma amongst an organization as well. And that's a real key area of Huge. preventing um, onset of crisis. It's actually if people are open and transparent about themselves, then actually you're living in a much better culture. Yeah. Yeah, the importance of that is huge. And I mean, you see it just in, and the way that culture has shifted for us from even, I would say even, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't take a, a mental health day off, yeah, exactly. right? That was, that was non-existent. And now we have those times where we can just say, hey, I need a day for myself. I'm going to take this one off. And depending on where you work, I, I know there's still companies that aren't for that or they don't believe in that, but most companies do understand the importance of that. And so it's very interesting to look at the culture and see that. Now, you may have said this before, but can you just reiterate, like, is there something going on in, like, for you to get all of these data points on me and on my phone and on my computer and all of that, are you running in the background so that you can catch things that maybe wouldn't necessarily be seen? Or is it only if I interact with the specific app that I, I get to give you data? So... Future-wise, what we would love to be is we would love to have no interaction whatsoever with um, with an individual. That we would only speak to them in the event of any form of intervention. Um, however, we're we're miles away from that, um, and 
we do not believe at this stage, especially within a business, that we um, would monitor an individual. So we, we don't look at, for example, we, we know there are platforms out there from a mental health and a well-being point of view for businesses that monitor emails. Um, they look at frequency, they look at um, regularity, they look at um, tone of emails that are going out there. Um, we don't think that's morally acceptable to be able to monitor an individual's email, um, for example. So the, the data that we take from uh, individual employee is all that we take from them is actually the information that they communicate directly to us. Um, and then we take objective, um, factual information from the organization as well. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like this compare and contrast from what they're doing and, to, and then the bigger picture and the what the organization has. I mean, it's funny you say that because I've talked quite at length with others around this subject of like the company spying and in our Slack channel also we I, we just put up something about Amazon having their webcams will tell Amazon if their employees are working so it's like really showing you that it's and from a mental health standpoint that is just that's ridiculous to me that the kind of pressure that that would put on someone but I've talked to one person that comes up is Lewis Bird and he his application is very much it's it's got some similarities but it's very much for like suggesting um basically keeping health in the whole organization and making sure that people get the uh the recognition they deserve and get these things that are are deserving of them mm -hmm. and and his response to that when I told him, oh, well, how are you going to do that? And they're going to monitor Slack. They're going to monitor emails. They're going to monitor all of this information. And he was saying, well, if you think that the company doesn't already monitor that, then you're very naive, right? So the companies are already doing it. So why not just leverage that? But that, that goes back to just... You can look all over history and talk about, well, if someone's doing something bad, then actually if I do that too, then is that a bad thing? Mm -hmm. The ethical question is always there. You know, for any research um, or any work to be ethical, you know, prime example is that we need informed consent. Um, and, you know, we are, you know, if someone doesn't want to speak to us, then we don't speak to them. It's as simple as that. But the way that we do communicate with employees, we onboard significantly more participants or employees than a lot of those who use smoke and mirror tactics. Because we're so open and ethical in the way that we approach this, we have that trust from day one. And it means that we get much the quality of data is a lot higher than if, if not. Yeah. Well, and I see this vision of you not wanting to interact with the employee. You just are kind of there and you know what's going on. You have this pulse check on the company, but unless there is a danger, you're not going to step in anywhere. And I also see the reality of like, wow, that is some you're walking a very fine line, right? So the importance of being open, like you said, and making sure that everyone knows exactly what is happening with their data and exactly what's happening with Wellgood and how you convey that. Because I just think about the terms and conditions that you always have to read and sign and nobody reads those. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the lawyer that's listening does actually read them, but you don't have a choice, right? Like you either sign them and you use the app and you get the benefits or you don't. And then you just say, all right, cool. Well, I'm going to try and find an alternative. So where and how do you be so transparent? How, how do you go about telling people that? So we, we're not afraid to talk about how we're trying to drive change within business. 
you know, we're, we're trying to create cultures that are, that empower, as I said at the beginning, that empower and educate organizations and employees for, to live better lives. And <clears throat> the way that we're transparent is that we have a full onboarding suite that um, sort of acts in a marketing communication plan, basically, that we, we onboard well good champions within an organization and we empower them to be able to communicate openly um, with, with staff, with leadership. We also, um, in the way that we onboard staff throughout the program, we have a multitude of different ways that we do that as well. And we give choice as well to employees, which is, it may sound really small and insignificant, but it is a hugely powerful um, feature that we have in the way that an employee can choose to um, communicate with us on Slack, for example, mm. or they could choose to communicate with us on a completely different platform. We go to where the communities are, we go to where the trust is, and if they don't trust that, you know, to communicate with us on Slack is best for them because they're worried that their employer is monitoring their Slack, mm -hmm. then they can communicate with us on a completely different platform. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that seems like the way to do it, right? Because that was another one of my main concerns when you were first breaking this down is that how am I as an employee going to buy into this when I know you're working with my boss? Yeah. Right? Like what am I going to think or what is my boss going to think if I just start like if if I start divulging all of this or if um, things are recommended about me that aren't necessarily good, but it seems like from what I understand and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're not recommending things unless there is a significant danger of a, like a spiral and you're also not doing it. It's all very anonymous. Exactly. So the, the boss is never going to know that, oh, you well good recommended that his employee takes some mental health days or does some some of this exactly that so at no point um is any form of data traceable back to an employer in fact to a degree we don't know who we're speaking to as well um mm. so we do have um, an sos function within within the platform that if we were to see crisis um coming up or if a employee was to request help through us, then we would be able to identify them as us. But at no point would a business ever be able to identify um, an individual employee through what Wellgood provides them. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk a bit about <clears throat> the difficulties of machine learning right now, because I know that there are a lot and it's not as simple as just saying, okay, let's use some machine learning or let's use some AI and fix it, right? And Or we could do that with AI. So how are you implementing machine learning and how are you making sure that it, it doesn't come out with biases, which are so frequent these days and, and making sure that that is also trustable mm -hmm. or trustworthy, I should say. So not only are we um, working with businesses, we, we've actually got a number of uh, university studies um, going ahead as well. Um, so we, have, we are clinically backed. Um, we've got scientifically rigged um, thought process that's going into everything that we're doing. Um, so we have leading psychologists throughout the UK that are supporting us with that. Um, not only with that, we, we we are, um, we are working with a number of leading um, data academics as well um, to be able to provide us with the right level of rigor around our data um, mm -hmm. and how we develop that for, for our machine learning as well. Um, but all that's all well and good, but you know, we are also held accountable as an organization by, um, by our participants, 
but also we we have in place um or we're part of the i will get up the um i forget what it's called um this is a really big area as well but what we do is um so we're we're working towards a lot of for example like b corp um, so from a sustainability and an ethical standpoint, we know that they accredit businesses around, you know, ethical practice and around sustainability. So we're moving towards that form of movement. Um, we are also, um, we've applied to be a part of the ethical um, AI Institute. Um, and nice. we are looking for essentially to bring a call into how people can actually regulate ethics within AI. Um, because as we've alluded to previously, it's like you use so much data and it can be used for good, but actually the propensity to be able to, you know, really affect the most vulnerable when they are at their most vulnerable is huge. And so this is why we've looked at gender biases, we've looked at even anything around diversity from a bias point of view. And we are hugely conscious of that with every step that we make through through the WellGood program. Yeah, and when all of these machine learning models are coming through and they're deciding things, they're giving you predictions, right? Mm -hmm. How are you making sure that those are accurate predictions? So we've, we've got a chief psychology officer on board um, and she's, she's a lead um, academic at Nottingham University. Um, so she's, she's even been recently published for a lead study that she did around um, stress, anxiety and depression um, during lockdown in the UK. Um, so that was published in the British Medical Journal only, I think, a month ago. Um, nice. There's a large study that she led. And so we're not only engaging with her as our, you know, as our chief psychology officer, but we also have a number of clinicians, so people who are actually in the field who are reviewing our signposting and what we are actually mm. recommending in that sort of way. At no point are we in a position to say to an individual, um, of a certain therapy that they need or of um, specific um, treatments that they may need. You know, we, we would in no way recommend that, say, someone takes antidepressants or medication um, because you need human intervention at that point to be able to understand really if that was needed. So for us, what our job is to do is to create awareness and empathy of that individual's surroundings and then provide them the relevant resources at that right time. So, mm. you know, to be able to reach out to HR personnel or a friend or a family member or go to their, um, go to their GP or, you know, seek a therapist. You know, all these that we can actually look to provide recommendations within our intervention strategy. Interesting. So you're never sending them a notification saying, hey, you should probably go see someone? At no point do we, at no point will we um, actively look to trigger someone into thinking that they are unwell. Mm -hmm. If we've done our job right, then an employee will be able to understand that themselves and become aware because of the education journey that we've taken them through. Uh, interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I see how that could get very muddy very quickly if you are recommending antidepressants and then all of a sudden you start getting kickbacks and yeah. then you start being incentivized to recommend more antidepressants and there's your business model <laughs> and there's also a great way to destroy the trust, right? Oh, definitely. So, and it's, it's a reason why we're not diag diagnostic in that way. So we will never tell someone that we're you know, that they have anxiety or that they've had a rise in stress. You know, the, these are areas that we will speak to the organization around. You know, we will talk to them about the fact that there's been a rise in anxiety within the organization. But at no point will we 
allow a an employee to be directly told by us that they are stressed and that they need time off work. Um, so our whole entire product and our whole entire business model is about preventing them from taking time off work in the first place. Mm. So if we can keep them healthy through our messaging and how we're educating them around mental health, um, then we've done our job. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's great. Then that kind of leads into my next question. I mean, because mental health is such a financial burden on companies and on governments, right? Why do you feel it hasn't been taken so seriously? I mean, now maybe it's coming more to the forefront of conversations and it is being more recognized as an important piece of this puzzle of humanity. But what is it that you feel like, uh, A, why it wasn't taken seriously and B, what is changing and what still needs to change? I think the, the amount of research that's gone into it over the past five, 10 years has been a lot more than maybe previously. Um, a lot of traditional treatments around mental health have been you know, locked into a, basically a 50 year state. You know, it's a lot of them are outdated and, you know, may look at an example is bipolar disorder, may look at it as traditional, you know, manic depressive um, and, you know, look to treat everyone in exactly the same way. Um, I think the amount of research and data that's gone into it recently and the fact that we've got more, um, more celebrities talking about their mental health. Um, we've got um, a lot of the social media um, companies, a lot of the big giants. They're talking about the impact that they potentially could have on the on the health of individuals. Um, and then we've got big um, big consultancies like Deloitte, uh, where they're reporting on an annual basis of, of the cost of mental health to an economy. You know, it's it's not it's not data that you really have to look for anymore. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's no, the fact that, you know, for example, 2020 in the UK, the suicide rate is at its highest for 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. that's data that you can find very quickly. And so I think just the, the amount of awareness that is around there, you know, it's been growing and growing for the past five, 10 years, and especially with myself, and then now we're starting to see real action coming into play because it's not just us talking about feelings. It's us understanding, well, if this employee, as an example, if this person was to um, leave the organization, how much would it cost the business? What would the yeah. impact be into the organization from a financial point of view? They'd likely have to, well, they'd have to recruit someone to be able to come in. Okay, how long does it take to be able to recruit someone so that deficit of work won't be produced? Mm -hmm. How much do they have to pay a recruitment company to be able to recruit that individual? And how long is that onboarding process as well Mm -hmm. to be able to bring them into the organization correctly? And so the amount of money it costs to be able to replace an individual who leaves an organization due to stress, as an example, is huge. And as talent is hard to find, you know, and I mean good talent is hard to find, I think organizations are now starting to wake up to the fact that if we treat our staff well, and we have a vibrant culture, then actually we're gonna perform better. Yeah, yeah, completely. And that is something that you see, it feels like it's obvious, right? Mm. But for so many companies, it's not, and especially, well, maybe I'm a little jaded because I have been living in Spain for the last 10 years and there it really felt like they were behind on this. And in all of the companies that I would go into and I would talk to and especially as I was I was teaching mindfulness to different companies and so many companies looked at me like, why would we need that? What the 
like who cares about that kind of stuff and it was the forward thinking companies in Spain that would realize hey that exact thing if we treat our employees in a good way then we will not be losing money having to rehire or onboard someone or just lose out because people are burnt out and the rehiring process actually is is quite difficult in Spain so most people just take time off mm-hmm. and then that company is left there uh, having to have the other workers do that work like we mentioned before so there's some so many great points here i mean i think we talked about it a little bit but i would love to hear like your long-term plan for Wellgood. Where do you want to see it? How do you want to see it grow? And what do you feel is coming? So I think, you know, our, our ambition is to create healthy cultures and you know, vibrant cultures, you know, within organizations. But we would love to, you know, crack the consumer market as well. You know, not mm-hmm. just just the business market. I think right now for us, the where we are from a tech point of view and where where cultures are around understanding of mental health is we, we still haven't hit the majority of businesses that that actually take mental health seriously. Um, it's often deemed as tick box tick box exercise where yeah. Um, an EAP system or an employee assistant program um, is often deemed as, you know, what needs to be put in place, but it's completely reactive. You know, if you're expecting employees to be able to come forward and say that they're not unwell, hmm. you know, uh, it just doesn't work. So for us right now, it's about really cracking the workplace. Um, and allowing these laggards and the majority for that matter to be able to come to their senses. And so the way that we're doing that is really by trying to be best friends with a with an FD instead of shying away from them. You know, we're not talking about just doing a mental health awareness workshop. They have great impact around awareness, but actually what we're doing is we are really trying to be, we're trying to align with the capitalist factor of business as much as possible um, and put a pound sign or a dollar sign to everything that we're doing. And by us doing that, then we can make a huge amount of impact to you know, a whole wealth of individuals from around the world. I love that you you want to take it to the masses and let's geek out a little bit on this product, how it would be when it does, because I think that there is so much potential. I mean, but with the company, you have the data from the company. What would it be if it's for the masses? Are there different personas that you're looking at? Or is there different areas? I think I think as the product would evolve, it would be completely different. Um, you know, we, what we do with businesses is there is data that we can access, you know, through the business's consent. Yeah. Um, and we would have to do that with um, with an individual um, to the, when we when we were to roll out to to the masses. So there's a whole host of data that people do give up quite freely on a regular basis. Um, and you do that if you want, for example, if you want to access finance, you'll happily give out information about your credit. You'll happily give out information about your health. You know, and very similarly, you know, that's something that we could look to tap into. Um, we could look to understand financial records. We could look to understand social records. We could, we could really immerse ourselves into the lives of individuals and only actually need to communicate with them if there is needed an intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds nice. So the, we're getting to the end of our chat, but I have... Just like one, it's not so much a question because I can't figure out how to formulate this question. Uh, But it's more of a story and it kind of paints the picture of where I feel like a lot of people are at right now in 2020. And I was sitting in on an interview and uh, the guy who was getting interviewed, it came to the end and it was like, do you have any questions for me? 
And the guy asked the interviewer, so, like, you know, I'm a big proponent of mental health. I did, you know, he was like an advocate at his last company. It was a big company. Now he was interviewing for a startup. And he said, how does this startup take mental health? How do they look at that? And basically the startup, the interviewer was like, if that's what you're looking for, this is not the place for you. And this is what we're doing. We're working our asses off because we're trying to get this product launched and we're trying to, you know, make billions, whatever. It wasn't exactly that. It was paraphrasing, but that was the sentiment mm -hmm. of it. And so my whole thing there is this guy who's trying to get this job, right? And in a very difficult job market as it is in 2020, because he's not the only one that has potentially been laid off. Now he has this choice, right? Like he can stand with his morals and maybe not get a job for a longer amount of time. And he'll have to look and then maybe he does get a job and it's great and kumbaya happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Or he can say, you know what? All right, let's go with this startup. They don't really take mental health seriously, but I have a job and then I can feed my family. So that kind of predicament is, is the story that I'm trying to convey. And I don't know if you have any wisdom around that. I think, I think it's more a look at leadership and, and their mentality around it. So, so for a start, your friend who went to that business, I can guarantee that if he was to join that business, he'd leave very quickly because the culture and the, the focus of that organization is completely against everything that he believes in. Um, and actually the business itself would probably suffer as well, you know, um, so I spoke about B Corp, so the B Corporation movement, um, earlier on, and it was reported that B Corps actually grow about 28 times faster than, well, this in the UK. So B Corps grow 28 times faster than UK GDP. So if you look after your staff, if you have a sustainable business, then your business will be more successful. It will grow. And this is, this is fact. And so, yes, you can burn and burn and burn. But actually, when you start talking about sustainability, I don't mean just looking at light bulbs and, you know, driving Hot electric showers. cars. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> It's not looking at that. It's actually your real, the real culture of your organization. If you start looking into that, then and and looking after your staff, if they fall in love with your business, if they become real ambassadors for your organization, then they will go the whole world and over for your organization. They will drive and drive and drive, and you'll have to be the person to be able to put on the brakes for them. As opposed to, this is what we expect. We expect you to run at 18-hour days. We expect you to sleep under your desk. And we've all been there. You know, it's, no one wants to be in it. You know, everyone used to think it was a rite of passage that, you know, for you to be successful, you need to be in that space. You need to go through all that pain. But surely we can learn from that. Yeah. Incredible. I love it. I love the insight. And it is very true. It's very much what I was thinking along the lines of, yeah, he, he may join for the short term, looking very short term and saying, well, you know, I got to get something. There is this, it doesn't really align with my morals or my ethos, but it is money. It is a job. So maybe using that in a way that is a uh, is a stepping stone, but still, like you said, it's not going to last and it's not going to be sustainable. And if you do it in the right way, then the employees will be bending over backwards for you. Exactly. And I like that, that you're going to have to be the one that is putting on the brakes. Right? You're going to have to tell them, hey, chill, take, take a few days off. It's not necessary to kill ourselves on this because... It's, it's no longer needed. We don't need to sleep under the desks.
So I've got one last question for you, Dan, and I really appreciate you being here, talking with me and walking me through all of this. As I told you, it's something that is, is close to my heart. And so I, I appreciate the work that you're doing and how you're going about it in mm-hmm. such a, an ethical mindset, right? Like you're very clear on how you're looking at this as a, an important problem, but also you recognize the dangers and you recognize how this can be used for, for bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last question is, are you a robot? <laughs> Um, I may sound it at times, um, but definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I want to thank you again. And for all those that are still tuning in, listening, we have a Slack community that I mentioned before. Jump in it. This is where all of these conversations are continuing. So you can find the links and everything you need to know about the Slack community down below in the description. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 